been a little while. I just realized since I was back here in the pulpit, I let the young bucks do the preaching there. They did. I was so proud of these young preachers that God raises up in our midst. And what a joy for me to hear them preach and for you to experience their skills at handling the Word of God. I love preaching. I, I, I love to preach and open up the Word of God, but it's good to sit and listen to these young men that God is raising up here at Cornerstone and, and to know that they also share that great passion for preaching. And I want to say to you, congre- congregation, thank you for encouraging them as they stand before you and they preach the Word. Thank you for praying for them. I know what that means to one who opens up the Word of God. But it's been a while. I started the series in 1 Peter, as you may remember. We hadn't even got out of chapter 1. But we're moving forward, okay? Today we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. And so as we do that, I'd like to share a statement with you. I've modified it a little bit since I last shared it with you because I think it's, it's important. I, it, I wouldn't call it a theme verse for your life, but I do believe it is a truth that will help you and I to put things in proper perspective and live our lives successfully as God's people. And here it is. We must re- resist the entanglements of our earthly residency. We must resist the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of influences that entangle God's people along this earthly journey. Do y'all realize this is not our home? This world is not your home. If you're a child of God, this world is not your home. Praise God! Because we know where this world is headed, ultimately. We'll get there in 2 Peter, but don't get ahead of me. But we know that we have a home, an eternal home, a blessed home, and it is in heaven. You can take that to the bank because the Word of God says it. So don't get entangled in this earthly residency that will hinder you from being able to embrace your true citizenship in heaven. Don't lose sight of your ultimate destination. Because a lot of things and a lot of influences will try to cause you to do that. And in doing so, you will lose your effectiveness as a child of God, as a servant of the Lord. The Apostle Peter, as we look here in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter reminds Christians that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we, number one, actively engage this world with a settled hope. That's what you take out into the world as a child of God. That's what I take out into the world of God. I know we live in a world that appears to be hopeless. That appears to be bleak and chaotic as I mentioned. But for you and I, as citizens of the kingdom of God, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a hope that is settled. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But look with me there in verse 13. And as you see, there's one of those words that you always stop and ask, what's it there for? Because it says, therefore. 
The Apostle Peter is getting ready to shift from the previous 12 verses that we looked at earlier, which is in the indicative mode. He's informing people. He's informing us of things that we need to know. And, and, and so as we think about that, the, Peter is saying, when he says, therefore, he's going back to those first 12 verses. He says, because of what we saw in these pre- what, he, what I told you in these previous verses, he's ready to give an imperative, which says, having been told this, this is what you must do. An imperative is an order. Okay? If a state trooper, another police officer pulls me over, heaven forbid, but if they do, and they say to me, Sir, step out of the car. Friends, that's not a a suggestion by a man in a uniform for me to debate and consider. Listen, all these people, I don't know what's in their thinking when they try to bull up against a police officer and and get all uh, arrogant and and, and resistant and and, and have that kind of a disrespectful, disrespectful attitude. Folks, listen, I respect the law. Because the law protects me. And when a man has a badge on and he has a 38 strapped to his waist, listen, if he says, sir, step out of the car, guess what? I'm jumping out of that car as fast as I can. Probably seatbelt and all. That's imperative. What is it that Peter's saying, therefore, that we ought to do what he's telling us for the next few verses? Oh, have we so soon forgotten? In the first 12 verses, Peter was just about falling all over himself in opening up the letter to the, the early Christians in the first century A.D. He was sharing all these wonderful things. He said, Bless, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant great mercy has be, begotten us again to a living hope. There you go. We have a, we have a wonderful living hope. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a hope that is alive that will never fail because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came out of that tomb victorious in the power and the glory of God. That is a hope, folks, that will never be quenched. That's just one of the benefits. Look, he goes on in verse 4. Peter tells us about this wonderful inheritance that we have as the children of God. An inheritance that nobody can take. No lawyer can swindle you out of it. You don't have to worry about inflation because it's protected and preserved and reserved in heaven for you and me. Oh, but listen, it doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us about how we are kept by the power of God in salvation. A wonderful, glorious salvation that was made possible not by our merit, not by our works. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It is purely by the grace of God. It's our salvation, he says. It's a wonderful salvation. Not only that, not only the inheritance and not only the salvation that God has given to us, but as I just kind of recap some of the things he's talking about, he said, look at your faith. Look at this faith of yours in verse 7. This genuine faith of yours. How do you know it's genuine? Because he says, even through these times of fiery trials, you find your faith to have been purified and tested and is proven. Thank God for the trials. Thank God for the struggles. Thank God for those hard times that may push us to the limit. Because you know what? God sends those trials. He sends those times of, of tribulation. James says, rejoice. Because it's in those times your faith has been made pure and perfect and mature. Oh, listen. Peter says, rejoice in this wonderful faith that God has given to you. And then in verse 9 again, this salvation. 
The end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Folks, that's the end product. That's really what it's all about. The fact that when we stand before the Lord and we're in that wonderful state of glory, our salvation will have been made absolutely complete. So Peter is saying, in view of all the wonderful, eternal, divine blessings that have been bestowed upon you by Almighty God, he says, therefore, verse 13, gird up your loins, or the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, that's reflective of verse 7. Because Peter, uh, back in verse 7, he ended verse 7 talking about to, to be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is not looking back. Peter doesn't live in the past. He's founded and based in what has already occurred. But let me tell you something. I got, a, I got an idea that the Apostle Peter had a mindset for the future. Oh yeah, he rejoiced in having the experience of walking with Christ and knowing Christ and experiencing Him and having, having disappointed Christ, being renewed by Christ and, and having been a first-hand witness of many wonderful things that Jesus did and certainly a, a, a personal witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh listen, Peter had a lot to enjoy as he looked back in the past, but that's not where his mind dwelt. His mind was looking to the future. He says, at the revelation of Christ, Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen? Amen. He is coming again. I live every day with the blessed hope of knowing that one day Jesus can come. And you realize it could be today? It could be before we finish this service. And I say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come this day. But we actively engage this world with a settled hope. And let's look at the nature of this hope. You know, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul talks about the three key virtues, the main virtues, if you will, in that chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 13, but also in verse 13, he talks about the three key virtues, faith, hope, and love. And so we know the importance of hope. We know the importance of faith. And, and the hope that we have the hope that we have is, the reason I call it a settled hope, is because it's already a done deal. It's not something that is contingent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon how well we perform. It's not a matter of what we do. But ladies and gentlemen, it is a done deal. It has been settled. We can live with this blessed hope that the Apostle Peter talks about here. You know, it's interesting because on one hand, you got the Apostle Paul who makes much of faith. And it is. Paul talked a whole lot about faith and, of course, grace. But then you have Peter on this hand talking about hope. Now, one doesn't exclude the other, but they go hand in hand. As Dr. John MacArthur stipulated in his commentary on that passage, he was talking about faith and hope. And he says, faith, as Paul was holding up and elevating in his writings, is trust in God in the present based on what he has already done and what he has already said. We have faith that Jesus Christ came into this world, was born of a virgin, worked great miracles before people. We have faith that Jesus Christ taught about the kingdom of God and how we can live as, as citizens of the kingdom of God. We have faith that at the proper time appointed by God that Jesus Christ went to the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God and shed his blood for the atonement of the sins of those who put faith and trust in him. We have faith in the reality that Jesus was buried, 
and remained in the grave until the third day. And on the third day, we have faith that Jesus Christ came out of that tomb. You see? Yeah, those things that God has already done, the things that He has already said, we have faith that they were indeed a reality. There's no doubt in our minds. But then Peter, talking about trust, I mean hope, Dr. MacArthur said, hope is trust in God for what is to come based on the promises of God. When Jesus said He's coming again, ladies and gentlemen, He meant it. He's coming again. I haven't seen the coming of Christ yet. I may not be on the earth when the, come, the second coming of Christ occurs. But the fact is, I know I will witness it from one perspective or the other. Either the terrestrial perspective or the celestial I don't care. I just want to be there. And I will be there. And I live with that wonderful hope of knowing that when Jesus comes again, I will witness it because I'll be with Him. So will you. And so we put our hope in those promises that we have in the Scripture. And and the second coming of Christ is just one of many promises that we have that are given in the Word of God. Do you realize, unlike our government or any other government or a lot of friends you have, God has never broken a promise. As a Native American, I oftentimes joke about the fact that, you know, the federal government back in the days when the plains were, were being settled and the lands of the Native Americans was being taken up and the, and the great white father would make these wonderful treaties with our people and promise us this and this and this. And then, of course, you know, later, you know, so, it, you know, sooner or later, Tonto said, white man speak with fork and tongue. But he was, he was talking about the government, Okay. And the government still speaks with fork and tongue as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, don't want to get into politics. But our hope rests on God's grace. The wonderful promise that God has extended to us that His grace is past, it's present, and it's future. By grace, I have been saved. So have you. Some of you can remember a time where the Lord moved in your heart and you knew that He was calling you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Oh, is there anything sweeter than the amazing grace of God? Hey, listen, you and I live in the grace of God present tense, don't we? Sure you do. God continues to extend to you and me His unmerited favor. Every day you wake up, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. The blessings we receive on a daily basis, the friends we have, our family we enjoy, opportunities that come our way. Let me tell you something. God is still exhibiting His grace every day. And Peter helps us to understand that this grace, this marvelous grace of the Lord. Hey, listen, He ain't done yet. Pardon English. He's not done yet. Because we'll see the fulfillment of this glorious divine grace when Jesus comes again. And those of us who are walking in these broken, sin-tainted bodies subject to the world, the devil, the flesh, stumbling and fumbling along, one day we'll step out of these old bodies into a brand new body that the Lord has for us. We'll be out of this world that is enshrouded in sin. We'll stand in the brightness of the Shekinah glory of God in a perfect place called heaven. We'll be there where there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no death, there's no semblance of sin, and grace will be absolutely fulfilled. We'll see the full reality of God's grace when we are glorified and we look at Him and we 
see Him and we realize that we are like Him. Oh, hallelujah. I said, even so, come Lord Jesus. But then we talk about the demands of this hope. And Peter talks about that as well. Because not only are we engaged in the world with this settled hope, but we also have responsibilities related to this hope. And he uses participle phrases to describe that. And you see that in verse 13 when Peter is talking about preparing your mind for action. Depending upon the translation that you have, some translations, like my New King James Version, says, therefore gird up your loins. We don't use that expression a lot nowadays because men don't wear skirts. I understand in Scotland some place like that. But anyway, but back in that day when men wore robes, you know, and the outer garments just hung down like a long flowing robe. If a man was getting ready to run, he would gird up his loins. He'd take the belt. He would pull up the hems of his garment, not too far, and, uh, and tuck them into that belt so that his legs had free access to run. Or if he was a soldier, you girded up your loins as you went into battle to make sure you didn't trip over your long flowing robe or whatever. And so Peter's using that very familiar expression so that the people understand the seriousness. He's saying, get your mind ready. Get your mind sobered up. Get your mind focused. Get your mind ready. Gird it up. Discipline your thoughts. Is your thought life disciplined by the Spirit of God? Dear brother, dear sister, do you routinely discipline your mind to make sure that you're thinking the thoughts that please the Lord, that put you in the pathway of His will, that reflect the teachings of His Word? Do you discipline your mind? Paul said in Romans chapter 12, he says, stop being conformed to this world and be transformed. How do you get transformed, you might ask? Well, funny, he answers that. By the renewing of your mind. Let the Spirit of God discipline your mind, train your mind, get your mind focused on the things that are of God and of the Word of God. You know, it's interesting because Paul uses this same expression in giving the spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. He talks about gird your waist, talking about soldiers going into battle, gird your waist with the belt of truth. Strap your waist with the belt of truth. Make sure that what goes into your mind and the things that you meditate upon and you reflect on are truth. And I don't mean truth according to name any one of the popular television talk show host or whatever. I don't mean truth based upon current philosophy. I'm not talking about truth based upon what the Supreme Court may hand down. I'm talking about the truth of the Word of God. Gird up the mind. Get your mind prepared. One of the ways we do that is being properly focused. What are you focusing on? Money? Possessions? Positions? Power? Popularity? What are the things that you are distracted by mostly? What is the focus of your mind? You know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? He said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. Get up in the morning and start your day off thinking about the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit of God in you and the priorities that God has for your life for that day. 
Get up in the morning asking God, now, Lord, this day is yours. You have blessed me to enjoy this day. Sure, i got to go to work. Sure, i got to go to school. But, Lord, this is still your day. What would be the priorities of this day as far as you're concerned? Would you put them in my mind? Get me focused on the kingdom of God. Lord, don't let me become obsessed with these menial things, temporal things of the world. Help me to seek first the kingdom of God. But you know, it's interesting because he not only talks about girding up your loins of your mind, but be sober. Now, I realize that in the midst of a bunch of Baptists, y'all might not understand that, but there are people out there that indulge in mind-altering substances. And some of them are dangerous, as we heard tragically or sadly in this case of Sherry Puckett's parents. I have no... I have no... Sympathy for anybody that gets behind the wheel of a car having consumed one ounce of any alcohol or anything. I'm sorry. Now I won't get off on that sermon, but I'm going to tell you something. But, but Peter's not just talking about drunkenness with alcohol. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, remember? He says, don't be drunk with wine. Wherein is excess and debauchery. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't let your minds be altered by any other substance or any other philosophy or anything that would that would cloud your, your the clarity of your thinking and your alertness. He says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the what? The Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. And I'm gonna tell you something, the Spirit of God will sober you up. Don't be intoxicated with fleshly allurements and worldliness and materialism and all the things that would seek to gather you away from your purpose in life as a citizen of the kingdom of God. But we need to move on because not only should we engage citizen kingdoms, engage this world with a settled hope, but we also live in liberated holiness. And look what Peter says if we look further in verse 14. He says, as obedient children. Do you notice that? Because the Bible talks about sons of disobedience. You know who they are, don't you? They used to be us. Sinners. Rebellious. Lost. Depraved. Rebellious. People. Disobedient. Sons of disobedience. But that's not us. We're children of God. Earthly parents. Grandparents. Don't you wish that was automatically the category of your children? The minute they became your children, they were automatically obedient. And of course, disobedient children would be other people's kids. But Peter says, as God's people, as citizens of the kingdom of God, you are obedient children. As obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Again, there you go. Look at the different words, synonyms that Peter is using to help us to understand what it means to be lost. You're disobedient. You're, you're rebellious. Running against the grain of God's will. God says, do this, you go do that. You're ignorant. And, and I don't mean that in a way sometimes we talk about people being ignorant. People who are blinded, spiritually blinded. The Bible tells us they're walking in spiritual blindness. They're ignorant. If you don't know the truth, if you don't know the truth, you're ignorant. And Peter says, that's not you anymore. 
Stop conforming to the former lust as in your ignorance as you did before you were saved, he said. In verse 15, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We live in a liberated holiness before this world in which we live. And let me tell you something, okay? Because some of you are feeling the pressure already. (laughs) Holiness. Because we equate that with perfection. Let me tell you something. There are no perfect people. You probably have a few friends that would try to convince you they are, but believe you, there's only been one perfect person to walk on the face of the earth that was the Son of God. The Bible tells us that He, though He was tempted, would never sin. He never sinned. So we are never going to be perfect. But yet He says, Be holy, as your God is holy. So what is, what is Peter saying there? Number one, you can't do it in your own strength. You realize that? Even as a child of God, committed as you may be, as much as you study the Bible and want to be, let me tell you something, you are not going to be able to be holy on your own. But I say praise the Lord. Because Paul, the Apostle, has already given us a wonderful testimony in his own walk with the Lord in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life, holiness... The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So how do we become holy? By being filled by God's Spirit. By surrendering our will to God's will. Letting the Spirit of God live in and through us. He will do the job of the holiness. I think it's interesting because over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, We find these words given to us by the Apostle John in that first epistle in verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, speaking of God, is pure. We have access to purification and we understand that that comes through what? Confession of our sins. And repentance of our sins. Turning our back on sin. You're not going to be pure You will not stand before God in spiritual purity if you are harboring sin in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in your relationships. Dear friend, you cannot be pure and harbor sin. You can't even have a meaningful prayer life, the Bible tells us in Psalm 66, 18. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God won't even hear my prayer. Confession, repentance. This liberated holiness comes through genuine obedience. Are you obedient to the teachings of the Scriptures? You say, well, you know, some of them I am, some of them are not. It's not a big deal, right? Nobody's perfect. Do you love the Lord? Oh, sure, I love Jesus. I sing. Oh, how I love Jesus. I get up in the morning and say, Lord, I love you. And yet you carry on tampering with sinful things of the flesh or the world. That's disobedience, ladies and gentlemen. What does Jesus say about that? You said you love the Lord? Let me tell you what Jesus says love is all about. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, If you have my, anyone that has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Don't come in here with your trashy talk trying to tell me you love me when you're involved in an illicit affair. You're looking at porn on, the, on your, on your uh, internet and you're watching smutty movies and you're telling dirty jokes and you're involved in all kinds of... Uh, Shady deals. Don't come in here telling me you love me when you know you're disobedient. You don't love me. 
Be careful. Little hands, what you do. Be careful, little lips, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Because if you're not careful, you may betray the fact that you don't love the Lord like you thought you did. Oh, listen. That's a big deal. Our obedience is the result of salvation. That's right. You can't be obedient to the Lord if you're not saved. Try as you may. It's not going to be in you. It's not going to be a part of your nature. You're still a rebellious, depraved, separated, you know, enemy, alienated from God. You're not going to be obedient. Obedience to the Lord comes after you are saved because after you are saved, the Spirit of God dwells in you and He motivates you to be obedient to the Lord. So in that sense, you can't be obedient until you have experienced salvation. But here's the good news too. Your obedience, your obedience contributes to your sanctification. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? Now go ahead and raise your hand. Don't, you're not being sanctimonious. Sure, I, I would imagine, okay? Yeah. We want, to, we want to mature in our faith, don't we? How many of you want to be a better Christian today than you were yesterday? Or days before? Sure. Or you want to be a better Christian next Sunday than you are today? Sure. Sanctification is a process of maturation. Maturation. What is it? Maturing. Thank you. It's a process of maturing spiritually. And guess what? The more that you obey the Lord, the more mature you're becoming. Disobedience tears down. Obedience builds up. And it's that obedience that Peter's calling them to. And he says, stop conforming. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it, over in Romans 12, too, when he says, stop conforming to the things of this world. How many of you have backslidden? <laughs> That's wrong. Confession's good for the soul. I didn't mean last night. <laughs> sure. There are times when if we're not careful, if we don't have our guard up and we're not tuned in to God and following Him, if we're not careful, we'll slide back. Old things, they're not that far away, folks. Now, this is not biblical, but I just use it as an imagery. Satan's got one of his demons running behind you with a big old wheelbarrow filled with all the old sins, all the old relationships, all the old habits, all the old enticements. Oh, you don't have to go looking on a jungle safari to find your old ways. I guarantee you, they're right behind you, closer than you think. Put on your guard, stand guard, and be obedient because disobedience tears down. But what is it about this liberated holiness? He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Let me tell you something. The holiness of God in you is liberated. That's why it's important for us to walk in this holiness that He talks about. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 8, verse 31 and 32? He says, if you abide in My Word. That doesn't mean a passing, fleeting, you know, read, oh yeah, Jesus wept. Alright, I've done my Bible study today. 
I'm talking about digging into the Word of God, abiding. Listen, if you're going to abide in my house, you're going to help pay the rent and do some chores. No, I didn't mean that. Um, if you're going to abide in my house, you're not just going to come and sit down for 30 minutes and leave. You're going to stay. You're going to live there. Abiding means to camp out with. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you dig into my word, you meditate upon my word, and you focus upon my word, he says, then you are my disciple indeed, and listen to this, and you will know the truth. And the truth will do what? Set you free. Make you free. Listen, this thing of holiness where we are citizens of the kingdom of God and we live like the citizens of the kingdom of God and we act like the citizens of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. It is liberating. It liberates us from the past. Let me tell you, the past has no hold on you. The devil will try to convince you. Oh yeah, Charlie, you remember? <laughs> You're back over there at Wake Forest. You remember them days? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, look at you, you scoundrel. You call yourself a Christian now. Oh listen, the devil will try to tie you to the past. But let me tell you something. In Christ you have been liberated from the past. It has no hold on you. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Peter's picking up on it here. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Aren't you glad? I'm glad I don't have to live in fear of the past trying to catch up with me or having some kind of a wicked hold on me because let me tell you something, the shackles of the sin that I was tied to have been broken and in Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, I have been liberated. And this holiness, this holiness that God is calling us to, let me tell you something, it's not a new thing. It's not a New Testament thing. It wasn't like Peter or James or John or any of the disciples said, Whoa, where'd you get that, Jesus? <laughs> you go back all the way to the very origin of the covenant relationship with God and the nation of Israel in the book of Leviticus. And I want you to listen to what God said to them through Moses. He's talking to his people. He says, For I, this is a Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. Leviticus eleven forty-four. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. You've heard that before? We just read it. And he goes on in verse 45 and says, You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. Let me tell you something. It was a big deal to God because if you called yourself God's people, then you were representing Jehovah God. Not only that, you were representing His holy, perfect reputation before all of creation. And if you were going to be a child of God, you better look like Him. You better act like Him. Oh, we'll never attain the perfect, pure, divine holiness of God and perfection of God because God is God. But the more that we yield ourselves to Him in this life as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, let me tell you something, we began to reflect that wonderful holiness. I told you it's impossible we can't do it on our own. You can't go out there and meditate and go on some kind of a spiritual retreat and fast and do all that stuff to be holy. Let me tell you something. God's already done it. He told us that 2,600 years ago through the prophet Ezekiel. Listen to these amazing words that Ezekiel told to Israel. And I certainly believe they apply to every person that has been born again, saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God said through Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25, Then I will sprinkle, he's talking about the future. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take your the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, Pentecost, and cause you to walk in all my statutes and you will keep my statutes and do them. You see what God's saying? No, you can't be holy. Not just being religious. Not through rituals. Not through works, charity. There's nothing you can do to attain holiness. But God says when you confess your sins and repent of your sins and you turn your back on your old sinful ways and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is the blood of Jesus that He's talking about that will cleanse you. God says, I'll wash you. I'll get away. I'll take away the stain of the sin that would condemn your soul to hell for eternity. God says, I'll make you absolutely clean and I will put my spirit in you. Now somebody ought to say hallelujah. Because praise God for the miracle of salvation. I look at each and every one of you that I know that walks with the Lord and loves the Lord. You are a walking miracle. You are absolutely amazing. You, as a child of God, you make something like creating the solar system look like a blimp. My goodness, that the God of the universe could take a wretched, miserable, Satan-driven hell-bound sinner and make them to walk in the holiness of God. Hallelujah! Do it again. Amen. Well, we need to move along. Does that excite you? (laughs) Hallelujah! Because I know that one day, as the Scripture says, we will see Him and we'll be like Him. In verse 17, Paul, uh, Peter. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father. And you just stop there for a second. You just hang on for just one minute. Okay? Man, I love my dad. Y'all said so much new. I can't even begin to describe in words what it means for me to look into his face and say, Dad, to have the awesome privilege of being one of his eight sons, one of his eleven children. I don't have to call him and, and refer to him as his friends and associates do. O.C., Mr. Martin. When the chips are down, the rugs pulled out from under you, the clouds are billowing, billowing up in your life. Folks, you can't imagine the joy and the reassurance and the comfort it is to pick up a telephone and just say, Hey, Dad, can we talk? Do you understand? Peter says there in verse 17, and if you call on the Father, and we can, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9, when you pray, you say, our Father. Do you understand the Muslims can't say that? 
Buddhists can't say that. Other world religions can't say that. Nobody on the face of the earth or in all of creation can look to heaven and say, Father. And when you call Him Father, let me tell you something, you are confirming the fact that you are His child. And there's nowhere He won't go to reach you. There's nothing He won't do to help you. And that's why when He says, and if you call Him Father, how many of y'all call Him Father? (laughs) You better believe it. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Look, we're not bringing God down, not one iota, from His loftiness and holiness and providential greatness and sovereignty. He wants you to call Him Father. Do you understand? He wants you to know Him in a personal, relational way so that no matter what you find yourself going through, when everybody else abandons you or seems that way, the world seems to be crashing in on you, you can look towards heaven and you can say, Father! Knowing our Heavenly Father is such an intimate, loving God We also understand that we know our Heavenly Father is also our judge. And that's what Peter says. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality, He's the perfect judge. He's even better than Judge Judy. (laughs) Anybody is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, we're told we will be judged. You say, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold it. What about the great white throne of judgment? All the sinners, right? All the heathens, right? Cast into the lake of fire, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But don't you understand? That when you leave this earth, there's a day of judgment for you. You and I will stand before our precious Lord. He will judge us. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. And listen as Paul describes how all of our works will be revealed. And you will be judged. And for the things that you have done in true faithfulness to God and out of the right motivation and spirit, let me tell you something. You will be rewarded. And for those things that you invested yourself in that you thought were important down here on earth and God was looking at them as beans, wasting your time because they had nothing to do with the kingdom of God or exalting His name, God said, burn it up. That's my promotion. That's my degree. But Lord, you know what I'm saying? There's a membership at the club. That's my boat. Sorry, Mark. (laughs) I couldn't resist. (laughs) That would apply to my canoe. Okay, okay. (laughs) You see, things we love. And and, and God God said, torch it. That's no good. Torch it. And finally, you get to that point. You know where you spent that afternoon at the nursing home? Remember that time you sat and wrote cards to the shut-ins? Remember that time that person that you saw was going through a family going through a hard time? You went and bought groceries. Counts, counts, gold, gold, silver, gold. You will be rewarded. All Christians will be. And we will be rewarded by the ultimate judge of the universe who is absolutely impartial and judges us according to our works. And out of that judgment comes accountability. 
Because if we know that we're going to face Him one day, I think some Christians live as if, well, you know what? I'm just going to kind of drift on into heaven, kind of anonymous. You know, kind of like people like to go into these big churches and just kind of drift into the back door and sit down and nobody knows them and don't ever have to do anything. But yeah, I'm just going to kind of do that to heaven. Just slide on in there. Huh? Huh? As soon as you walk across the gates. I'm, I don't even know if there are. Well, there are gates of pearl. But as soon as you enter the heaven, bark, 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 bark. Charlie Martin's here. Charlie Martin's here. Come here, boy. Come here, come here. this is your life (laughs) I'm sorry I'm sorry it's it's not going to be quite that but but the idea is we will be we will be and if you know that if you know that you will stand before the Lord you will be just don't you know that you will it will alter the way you live if you know you're going to be accountable show me a child that the parents never disciplined and I'll show you a child who's not scared to do anything they'll spit in the parents face stick a hole in the tires you know, a car, scratch the paint. They don't care. They'll break the windows out. Why? Because there's no accountability. There's going to be any discipline. Why do I need to behave? Folks, there's a lot of Christians, or people call themselves Christians, living like that in this world today. Because they lost sight of the fact that the impartial God of the judgment one day will stand before them in person and hold them accountable for the way they live their lives as Christians. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to worry about it. You just go to hell. Okay. Closing up. Living daily with deep reverence for our Father in Heaven. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, we should be motivated to please the Lord because we have this deep reverence. That's, isn't that what Peter is saying there? He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in what? Fear? That's what it says in my translation. Yours may say a different word. But, but he's saying, as you live your life here on earth, knowing what has just been revealed to you, God loves you, but God is going to hold you accountable. You will be judged. Then Peter says, you need to live your life in a state of of absolute reverence every day knowing that God is watching you knowing that God is hearing you knowing that God knows your thoughts and that should alter our attitudes listen kingdom citizens citizens of the kingdom of God we live like nobody else on this earth because this is not our home Don't go out there trying to imitate the popular crowd. Don't go out there trying to look like you're so cool and cute and everything that everybody else will just fall all over you. You're an alien. I I know you have to be careful how you say that with science fiction fans, but, but you are. We are. Our home is not here. Our home waits for us there in the presence of God. So with that, we know that we are actively engaged in this world with a settled hope. We know that we are living in this world with liberated holiness. And we know that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we manifest deep, reverent fear for our Father every day. Every day. Is that you? I don't think it's coincidental that God impressed and burdened on my heart that I would be preaching through 1 Peter 
at such a time as this. Folks, the storm clouds are brewing. And the people of God, I'm talking about people who live by and practice the Word of God. You need to take note. Peter was pe preaching to people who saw the storm clouds of horrific oppression and persecution billowing up from the palace of a deranged Roman emperor called Nero. And he was warning the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, gird up the belt of your mind. Get connected with God. Make sure you know who you are. Because this world is going to come after you with such an intensity that if you don't know who you belong to, you don't know where your ultimate residency is, if you don't have a clear sense of spiritual identity, it's going to shake and rattle your cage. Now, I'm not doom and gloom. I'm not saying that the day after the 2016 election, you're going to find Cornerstone locked and chained and, and, and me in jail. That'll take about a month. No. But I'm just saying, folks, if ever there was a time for us to listen to Apostle Peter's warnings and his instructions, how do we maneuver in these dark, stormy times with a sense of hope, with a sense of purpose, with a sense of confidence? We don't need to be chicken littles running with our hands over our heads and saying, the sky's falling, the sky. We don't need to be desperate. We need to be dependent upon the God that we call Father and know that He's already waiting on us at the end of this horrific journey. And praise the Lord. He's got it all worked out.